Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. The uh, The book we're going to be talking about tonight is a recent release by Carlton Mellick III called Quicksand House. A little bit <laughs> about the author. <laughs> a little bit. Like a real-world Kilgore Trout, cult author Carlton Mellick III has been pumping out some of the weirdest, trashiest, most imaginative books that you'll never want to admit you secretly love. His books are released on a quarterly basis, every January, April, July, and October. Best known as one of the leading authors in the bizarro fiction movement in literature, he is also one of the most prolific authors of his generation, with over 40 books in print since 2001. He won the Wonderland Book Award for his novel Warrior Wolf Women of the Wasteland, and has had short stories make it into the year's best fantasy and horror, and the best bizarro fiction of the decade. Although many of his earliest works are on the surreal and experimental side, his current style is to take the most ridiculous concepts imaginable and approach them with complete sincerity, as if they are not intended to be ridiculous at all. Always full of tongue-in-cheek humor, social satire, and told in simplistic, straightforward prose style similar to that of children's literature or early pulp fiction, Carlton Mellick III's work is one-of-a-kind, to say the least. He lives in Portland, Oregon, the bizarro mecca yeah where the hell else would he live yeah <laughs> um, i guess that uh, that's enough so a little long or i'm sorry the bio is a little long but the guy's got over 40 books it could have been worse could have been yeah yeah so um a little bit <laughs> i say that kind of like rob did about the synopsis uh, about the book you must never leave the nursery if you leave you will certainly die tick and polly have never met their parents before They live in the same house with them. They dream about them every night. They share the same flesh and blood, yet for some reason, their parents have never found the time to visit them, even once since they were born. Living in a dark corner of their parents' vast, crumbling mansion, the children long for the day when they will finally be held in their mother's loving arms for the first time. But that day seems to never come. They worry their parents have long since forgotten about them. When the machines that provide them with food and water stop functioning, the children are forced to venture out of the nursery to find their parents on their own but the rest of the house is much larger and stranger than they could ever have imagined. The maze-like hallways are dark and seem to go on forever. Deranged creatures lurk in every shadow, and the bodies of long-dead children litter the abandoned storerooms. Every minute out of the nursery is a constant battle for survival, and the deeper into the house they go, the more they must unravel the mysteries surrounding their past and the world they've grown up in, if they ever hope to meet their parents they've always longed to see. Like a survival horror rendition of Flowers in the Attic, Carlton Mellick III's Quicksand House is his most gripping and sincere work to date. Um, This is your first Mellick book, right? This is my first Mellick experience. Um, I read Razorwire Pubic Hair um, a number of years ago, and um, looking forward to uh, was looking forward to to reading another one, and I think this was a perfect uh, perfect opportunity for us to do so. Special thanks to Cameron Pierce for uh, helping us obtain a copy of this from Eraserhead Press. So thanks, Cameron. Um, so we talked a little bit about this book, huh? 
Um, yeah, whatever's left. <laughs> um, yeah, the, so the book is uh, 220 pages after you take out all the stuff at the end, 210 pages. So it's not a very long book. And uh, I suppose there's a lot we could spoil about it, which we won't. But there's a lot to talk about because he has created a, a completely unique um, you know, universe in which the story takes place. Yeah, so I don't know. What do you think the best way? I mean, we could probably just go about our regular, this mm-hmm. is how the story starts kind of thing. Yep. Yeah. Um, I didn't bother reading the synopsis before I read the story, so uh, it, it unfolded perhaps a little weirder to me than it might to somebody who you know has listens to the show or actually read the synopsis. But it uh, starts off with Tick and Polly. Um, Tick is, oh, I don't know, 10 years old, right? Polly's uh, yeah, 15, like mm-hmm. yeah, or 16 and 11, so brother and sister, um, they're in the care of their nanny, Mrs. Warborough, and uh, you know, we kind of get a peek at the everyday life that, that they go through, where they teleport to school, um, Polly has uh, antlers on her head, <laughs> and I said <laughs> antlers, um, it's the, I'm assuming it's the girl with the, on the cover of the book that's, uh, that's Polly, um, she has green hair. Tick uh, is uh, just a regular boy. For, you know, it doesn't seem to be anything um, different about him. But yeah, they, they teleport to school and they basically live in this set of rooms in this mansion um, where you know a machine delivers food like up through the table. You know, at the at the times of the three daily meals. And as I mentioned, you know, Tick teleports to school. He puts on a helmet and then shows up in a classroom with other kids who teleport to school. So it's a right from the start. It's a very very strange um, strange world that they live in. But like, oddly not like it's <laughs> it's when I approach a bizarro uh, piece of fiction, there's always that kind of like you don't know what you're in for, so you brace for, you know, you brace for like the extreme end of like, you know, parasites growing inside your brain kind of stuff, mm-hmm. just in case. So I was like, I was really prepared for gruesome or like sexually explicit or just like really confusing and it's none of that it's it's um kind of almost like straight sci-fi uh mixed in with like almost a fairy tale kind of feel so uh from that aspect yes it's absolutely really strange but like in a very um palatable way especially in the beginning yeah, it also starts off very sad because we're introduced to these two children that have been wishing and hoping for years to meet their parents. So I think that it takes that emotional turn very early in the story when you kind of realize that that's all these kids really want it is just, you know, what uh, I'm assuming most of us had, which was you know, parents that we could see and talk to. And, you know, so um, the house they live in also has a, uh, a little bit of a, I don't know, almost like a rodent problem. There are... Um, creatures that live outside of the nursery so like in the walls and and in the hallways outside the nursery so that's another uh, you know uh, avenue of terror that uh, Melik introduces pretty early at first seemingly only through the eyes of Tick you know you almost wonder if they're real or if he's imagining them but uh, eventually they come to play a much larger part in the story yeah so right away you're basically introduced to characters who exist in a set of rooms within a house and when they do stuff, the only other place they go is school, and that's kind of in a virtual kind of teleport. They don't actually, like, travel to get there. So it's very enclosed, and then what that does is it creates, like, a very um, 
like a limited mythology so that the only the only things the kids know are what they are told from very specific sources and the only thing that us as the reader knows is what the kids are told from those very specific sources so um we start out yeah feeling that emotional gravity of like these kids just wanting to meet their parents but we also start out with that kind of uncertainty of do these creatures exist or are they just something that was invented to keep kids from going where they weren't supposed to go mm-hmm. so that's kind of like that fairy tale element where um you're in this kind of mystical land of not knowing what's real or not until you know obviously the book goes on and things are revealed in a, in a gradual but very like smooth way yeah and i'm going to mention this because it comes up pretty early the the nanny's explanation to the children of why you know their parents don't see them is um it's uh, social commentary was mentioned in his uh, in his bio and i think that this is really where it hits is that parents in the future and i should mention the future because the kids do read you know books from what seem to be like this time and they know of these things but they read them almost historically as they know it's a long long time ago but what's changed is that parents um, don't want to take care of their kids kids are disgusting they don't act appropriately they do foul things so they're put in the care of a nanny and you know some machines until they reach a you know a level of maturity that they can you know basically behave as adults and then they're supposed to have you know great relationship with their parents um, their parents don't want to change diapers they don't want they don't want to deal with you know poor behavior and, and and all the things that could come from a child so they basically lock them up until they're grown up yep and um so it's obviously a very unique type of life but i mean within there you just have kind of an everyday flow the older sister doesn't like the younger brother but the younger brother's very enamored to her uh the nanny's very strict and you know by the book um not very emotionally attached um for reasons we discover eventually and um it's it's interesting that in such a weird environment you get a feeling of like a very business as usual thing and um that's really nice because i mean he doesn't linger on anything it's a very it's not a very long book but like the business as usual aspect um gets you in this kind of mode until things start to go wrong and when those things start to go wrong you feel a little off balance too at least that's how i feel right so the things that start to go wrong um we primarily see them from Tick's point of view. Um, children at school stop showing up. Um, the ones that do show up act weird. Um, things start to happen that are very almost Twilight Zone-y. Um, you know, even when they go to school, they have a playground, but there's no way out of the the um, playground the playground yard, I guess. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to get out of that school for them. You know, at one point, uh, one of uh, one of Tick's classmates throws a basketball, the only basketball they have over the over the wall and the next day the basketball's back and ticks the only one remembers it being gone you know so in in conjunction with that the machines at home start breaking down the machine that makes the food is still providing food only it's providing just the foulest combinations of food even though it's food um, that you can imagine so that's really where we kind of uh, tick and polly and us the reader kind of embark on this on this journey um, to find the parents and to to you know to to make sh- to to see that things are righted basically they can no longer live in the environment that they're in yeah so that's kind of the introduction to act two is that enough stuff went wrong that they are forced out of 
the only place I've ever known and into exploring what is just like an astonishingly large house like kind of mentions it in the synopsis they say a vast crumbling mansion but yeah the the reality of how large it is you know is revealed in a lot of detail in the book so um they but the the one of the first things that they face one of the first problems that they face is the fact that since they've never been anywhere in this house they have no idea where they're going and they don't have anything to guide them the other big problem they face is the uh <laughs> the the creepy creatures that yeah again were mentioned in the synopsis the uh deranged creatures that lurch yeah. lurk in every shadow so um the creatures are real and um they have to kind of figure out what they can do to keep them at bay because they have no choice but to travel through this enormous building yeah and and those the creatures is referred to as they're referred to as creepers by polly and tick and danny warborough um are kind of interesting too even though they're a very secondary you know danger i think to to the characters themselves i think that melick did such a great job kind of creating them and you know even though there's never a a genuine like hardcore creeper encounter where you know we we get to see their motivation you know that type of thing just like how they are kept away and what their purpose is and stuff throughout the course of the book is uh it's pretty interesting i mean i guess as I was reading this book, uh, I don't remember the last time I was as interested in finding out what's going to happen at the end. Right. You know, where I kept turning pages because I wanted to finish the book because I wanted to know the explanation. And I'll be honest, I was really afraid that, uh, at least, you know, through the first third or so of the book, that we were going to be left without explanations for anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or they wouldn't be, you know, what I would feel satisfactory explanations. And that's not the case at all. I, I don't think there was anything, um, you know, in this book that wasn't accurately explained or accurately um, explained to to the point where you know you felt like you got what you wanted to know out of it it didn't right. leave you like wanting any more explanation yeah yep yeah for sure and I guess one of the things that we should mention that we didn't you know before something that happened before they embark and they leave the the nursery that they've been living in that's called a nursery um is that the they so we're we're introducing the book to Polly and Tick and the nanny and that's the uh, the entire you know cast of characters except for you know the imagined parents and then the, you know the parents I've never seen I should say and the the school um, but at one point very unexpectedly a a new younger sister arrives through uh, what is it called the baby tunnel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a baby room, and within the baby room, there's a baby tunnel uh, in which newborn children are delivered to the house, to the, you know, to the, where, to the baby room. And um, it's not a typical baby. Uh, I'll let Livius do the honors of describing <laughs> what a newborn baby looks and acts like. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. <laughs> It, it, so it comes down in an egg, and I actually have the page open. So I'm just going to read you this. It says, uh, When the egg cracks open, a smell of rotten fish fills the baby room. A fat gray worm rolls out of the fleshy shell, squeaking and growling at the nanny. So not only you know do young ladies grow up to have antlers growing out of their heads, but all the babies come in the form of like this 
kind of funky, nasty worm that <laughs> doesn't feed on milk or food, um, feeds on blood, like like a leech. Mm-hmm. So it becomes Tick's um, responsibility. It's always the uh, youngest of the siblings, I guess, you know what I mean? The youngest mm-hmm. sibling that takes care of them. So Polly took care of Tick and fed him numerous times a day from her blood and she harbors a little bit of resentment uh, towards him for that. Now Tick must do this with this baby who doesn't have a name because of a a malfunction of the machinery, which is a, you know, part of the whole mansion falling apart. So he names the, the baby sister Leech. Yeah. So him naming the baby sister, sister Leech might give you an idea of where he got his name Tick from. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course he's appalled uh, and and completely against the idea of raising his little worm uh, uh, sister, but you know Nanny Warboro explains to to him to them or to him I guess that uh, that's just the way that you know things are when a new baby comes along. It's the younger child's duty to be the one that it feeds off of until it's at the age where you know it kind of transforms into a normal. Uh, like a kid and can eat normal food and stuff so he's very reluctant but he really doesn't have a choice he has to kind of just you know man up and do it yeah and, and this part actually describes a little more about the whole parenting situation now babies are born ugly says nanny warbro picking the baby up into the air and while the cuteness factor used to attract adult humans to infants, these days the ugliness factor does the opposite. It causes adults to reject them. Parents don't want to have anything to do with their young until, they're grow, until they grow up. That's why you have nannies. Yep. So, uh, so the story goes on and on like this. I have some quotes, um, you know, about it. But yeah, basically they, they, we don't want to spoil anything. Um, they do leave the nursery. They go on a, a adventure through this very, very vast mansion um, in hopes of finding their parents. Yeah. So uh, we're going to cut it there because really everything about the story that is, is not everything, but a lot of the story, a lot of the goodness of the story is that you get to discover with them. So we don't want to kind of ruin that for you. Mm-hmm. But... Um, I, <laughs> Did you enjoy the whole exploration of the house as much as I did? That was like probably one of my favorite parts of the whole book. Um, yeah, I did. The I whole did. I... Not knowing, and then like when something new comes up, you're just kind of like, it was almost something. It was almost like a kid's book where you're, you know, you know, it's just something is revealed. You know, like everything. It's like always there's something new right around the corner, kind of thing, and and you're just you know going along for the ride, and everything's just like exciting and new, and and you know unexpected i agree wholeheartedly and that's i said you know i wanted to know more about the house i wanted to know about the parents i wanted to know you know even at the point where you know you kind of have this understanding of why the parents don't want to see the kids you know you kind of feel there's something else going on i wanted to know all about that and and yeah that journey um explains some things (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's vast in this scope that you know it's like they travel for hours you know, to try to get to another nursery because they no longer have food in there. So they're stopping at all the nurseries to see if there's food. So it's interesting. Uh, remind me a little bit of House of Leaves in that you know, kind of never-ending house type yeah. situation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was very, very good. Yeah, really good. 
And then, like, the whole parental theme is, is constant throughout because that's their only real anchor in reality is that they have these parents that, that it's always been throughout their entire lives. It's been promised that, oh, you know, your parents will be coming any day to, to you know, to see you. Um, so that's the constant kind of just out of reach thing for the kids. So that's the only thing they know to go looking for when they have to leave. So, um, yeah, it, it was just I liked it a lot. I guess before we we talk maybe a little more in depth about some of the you know, parental themes that we talked about in the book, um, there's an author's note from Mr. Melick the uh, Third at the very very beginning, and uh, he says that he's had this story in his head ever since he was a child, um, and that it's one of the most personal stories he's ever written. So I don't know if um, I don't know what type of you know childhood he had, <laughs> but man, if this is any indication, holy crap. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little, it's a little scary. Um, yeah, I, I, I took that to be more as like, you know, this is his imagination building on ideas he had as a kid mm-hmm. <laughs> more than like, this is his emotional reaction to his childhood. No, dude, I've seen pictures of his sister. She has, she has antlers. Does she have an eye patch? Yes, she has an eye. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Yeah, it's, uh, you know, so much in there about rejection and, um, you know, the desire for, for, you know, the desire children have for the love of their parents. Um, even if it's, you know, 10 years late in showing up, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's such a, in the book it's done in, you know, in the midst of a bizarro, basically horror story, but, uh, so much of that could definitely be something that, you know definitely indicative of what a child could go through and feeling rejection and fear of loss so. yeah, I was just thinking like what would happen if Carlton Mellick III got together with Caleb Ross and they wrote a book about family and parenthood Jesus Christ <laughs> <laughs> that, is a, that is a little bit of a scary thought there yeah that's like a perfect storm I guess okay but anyway back to Mellick, uh, Mellick III and his story uh, like I said a little bit before, because we see from the perspective that these children, you know, our our perspective of of the the world that they're existing in is like you know looking through the keyhole in a door. It's very very limited, and as time goes on, and and the kids discover more, we discover more, and they, you're putting the pieces together of the history of the world that we're in and the scope of things and what it all means in the bigger picture and um, just the way that it, it's almost like you're just like zooming out on a larger picture throughout the entire book and seeing just like more and more as you go and um, it was very satisfying to, to not just be stuck and mired in the mystery the whole time because like he could have left it at that small scale and kept us in the dark about like the grander scheme of things but um, you know, he gave us more than that, and I was I was happy for that. Can I mention how um, how visual some parts of of this uh, this book are? Um, Tick is uh, frequently in his dreams, basically visited by um, a vision of his mother, and it's it's a vision that he drew on a uh, you know on a piece of paper, but it's come to life. But he sees her as like a full size, like two dimensional paper drawing. Mm-hmm. 
which leads for just some great stuff. There, there are parts where you know she gets mad at him and she smacks him and he gets a paper cut across his face. Yep. You know, at one point he he grabs her and he basically like crumples her up into a ball. It, so even outside, just the the kind of weird situation that you're in, even though it's very tangible and, and real through the course of the story, you get this other portion where you know he's talking to this person made of paper and having these. Uh, in some ways, kind of heartwarming conversations with this vision he has of his mother. But just visually, it's, it's it's a very good book, I think, that there are just certain scenes that you can really vividly see in your head that, that he was able to put on paper and, and you know, and just make them three-dimensional. So. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, some pretty intense imagery that, you know, a lot of it you probably can't talk too much about because it might spoil stuff. But, yeah, some, yeah, definitely I agree with that. You know, I had some quotes, just a couple, because this was a PDF, so it was a little harder to get quotes. But when I look at them, they're all kind of spoilery. Mm. So um, I have one, if you don't mind, I'd like to... Let's uh, hear it. And this just, again, not that this book wasn't already surreal, but... Tick allows Leech to drink from Polly a little longer, just to make sure her wounds are clean. He only lets her drink from the eye wound for a few minutes, worried about what Polly would do if she woke up <laughs> to a bug sucking on her eye socket. god damn it that was uh that was pretty pretty horrible um i like the descriptions of the food when the food machines break down yep (laughs) just like because like it's all stuff that you know more or less everybody's eaten but the combinations that come out are just like nearly stomach turning yeah (laughs) so uh you ready to put a wrap on this one yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a gentleman, and I'll let you go first. Aw, that's so kind of you. <laughs> um, so it's been way too long uh, since I've read a Carlton Mellick the third book. Um, the guy puts out four a year, so very obviously I'm like thirty something books behind or whatever at this point. Um, I, I didn't know what to expect with this. I mean, having had uh, you know some exposure to him several years ago. Um, I, I didn't know what to expect of this. And as I was going through it, I found it very, very enjoyable. And like I said, I don't really remember the last time I wanted to finish a book quickly because I just wanted to know how it ended. You know, usually you're just kind of in the story and you let the story take you, you know, where it goes with this one, I like a burning desire to find out how it ended. And I, and uh, Malik certainly did not um, disappoint. Um, the story is interesting. It, it kind of keeps you guessing. He's mixed together elements of horror, science fiction, um, you know, bizarro, obviously, um, very emotional family stuff um, and and social commentary, Um, even some other things I didn't go into because I thought they were a little too spoilery that I really liked. Um, Yeah, I don't want to say anything about him now, so I'm just going to move on from that. (laughs) But um, he managed to to mix all these elements together to make a, a really enjoyable and interesting story. Uh, so, um, that being said, I'm going to give it four and a half stars. All right. Uh, yeah. This is my first time reading a Carlton Mellick anything, whether it's short story or a novel or anything. And um, uh, I wasn't sure what to expect. He's kind of the the primary name you hear of when you think of Bizarro. And again, um, that could mean any number of things. So, I went in kind of expecting anything and was just so happy with the story we got again like i said it's um 
it's definitely got weird elements to it, but um, the weirdness doesn't overpower the overall narrative. And um, he does a really good job of, of making the story so important that anything weird that happens is just, you know, the unique flair of the author, which I appreciated a lot because, I mean, I have to imagine that someone could be tempted to write weirdness into their story just to support a weaker narrative and that's definitely not the case here so um really happy with how strong the story was and how like emotional it actually was um the family theme was strong throughout uh but it was kind of balanced by the horrific element of these kids you know trying to get through this completely foreign world so um it was always there and it was building inside you know the reader but you don't really realize until the end how emotionally attached you are to what's going on so um i just dug it a lot and um <laughs> without spoiling anything like I, I was practically in tears at the end so uh it was overall just like a surprisingly just great book i, I think i'm gonna go with livius did you say four and a half stars i did i'm going with you four and a half yeah, I didn't touch on the ending, but I was a little, I was a little teary-eyed there at the end too, which again isn't what you expect from, you know, the author of the haunted vagina, I guess. But and I think that like now, having gone through, we live inside you, the Jeremy mm-hmm. Robert Johnson thing, uh, this book, and and some other just random bizarro here and there, I'm just gonna put that down. I'm gonna put that you know this was surprising thing down, because everything I've read from Bizarro so far has just so surpassed the kind of layman's expectation of the genre that mm-hmm. I'm just going to kind of consider that what I used to think about it. Wow. Yeah. Our little book reviewers growing up. <laughs> and I mean, like when we had uh, J. David Osborne on, he had mm-hmm. a very like passionate, you know, approach to the genre. And, and I think he kind of, I have to imagine they hear all the time about how, oh, this is, you know, surprisingly good for what it is. And that's not mm-hmm. like, maybe, you know, that's just an outsider's perception. And once you get enough of it, you kind of transcend that perception of it. So, oh, no, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. I, my expectation wasn't so much that it wasn't going to be good. It was that I didn't expect to be kind of, you know, almost weepy at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of books I don't expect that from, but, um, did you uh, did you see the bonus section um, afterwards? <laughs> yes, I did. I thought it okay. was really good. So um, a couple things um, noteworthy here. There's I'm going to just read what it says. Bonus section. This is the part of the book where we would have published an afterword by the author, but he insisted on drawing a comic strip instead for reasons we don't quite understand. And there is um, um, some self art of Carlton Mellick the <laughs> Third, um, complete with uh, with word bubbles. And uh, it, it talks about the making of this book. It's kind of interesting. So he actually, he says, writing marathon is where I start and finish a book in a single session. I lock myself away from the world for days or even weeks with no distractions or contact with the outside world. That's pretty interesting. It's got to be, it's tough. I, yeah. I couldn't do that. Well, all right. Let's, so let's be serious. The guy puts out four books a year. He has to have some secluded time because Facebook won't allow you to write four books a year. Yeah, wait, what's the duration of time? 
Uh, it just said weeks uh, for days or even weeks. Okay. He didn't specific. Oh, nope. Almost three weeks uh, for this book. It says, uh, I checked into the Red Lion Hotel by Portland Airport for almost three weeks. It's crazy, dude. That is crazy. But then again, you know, if you if you turn off the, the smartphone and you, you don't have internet. Yeah. And, yeah. and you're focused on what you're doing, you know, so... It could happen, but yeah, the, the comic is great. It's funny. Um, I'm assuming that some of this is uh, based in reality. Um, the part where the goo fairies come and reward him with little cakes. I'm hoping that that's actually true. Um, <laughs> and throwing uh, ninja stars out the hotel room window because that's something I've always wanted to do. I, I can see that happening yeah. for real. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. Overall, I mean, that's just between. The author's note and the afterward and the whole book. I mean, it's just a great experience. I'm really glad. Uh, I'm really glad that we decided to do this. And uh, thanks again to Cameron Pierce for making this happen. Thanks to Eraserhead Press for sending us a PDF of this. Thanks uh, to Carlton Mellick the Third for writing it. Oh yeah, that too. <laughs> um, yeah, we may have to put some more uh, Bizarro into the regular rotation. What do you think? Yeah, I'm always down for more Bizarro, and and hopefully now that our our obligations list of like things that we've already kind of committed to reading is not nearly as piled so high, maybe we can try and get some wiggle room to get some other stuff in there. Yes, 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 yes. Speaking of obligations, um, we had our own book we were obligated to put out, and we did. We did that. We did that. That was our Red Lion Hotel, like the last eight months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I may open up some time for us to do some other things, but uh, that time is not quite open yet. Would you like to tell the listeners why? Um, all right, so we're recording this on August 1st, which is a Thursday. Following Thursday is Friday, August 2nd, which is the day that I'll be preparing for August 3rd, Saturday, <laughs> uh, which is the release party slash reading for... Uh, the book anthology at the Galway Arms in Chicago at 7 p.m. Yep. Joining us there will be um, David James Keaton, Joshua Allen Deach, Kevin Lynn Helmick, Richard Thomas, Chris Deal, and, and special MC Skip Haversley. He is so special. He is special. He's going to be there as Brayton, though, so meh. I mean, he's still pretty special as Brayton. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's okay, but, you know. I'm looking forward to this a lot. Um, first of all, I, I, I've had the opportunity to see Richard Thomas at two different readings, but uh, conflicts came up and I didn't get to. So I've never seen him read live, uh, which is going to be pretty cool. And um, yeah, I just like all these dudes. Have we seen Chris Deal read? I don't nope. think we have. Nope. Yeah, so Deal and Thomas are just brand new to the roster. Deech, too. And Deech, good lord. Yeah. I've actually seen Richard Thomas read. I saw him. I can't remember what the name is, but he did that thing where he was partnered up with an artist and they had like oh, a yeah. whole installation that, that he read from. And it was very, very moving. Both him and the artist um, did a fantastic job. So uh, I do understand he's going to read something that's um, dirty and sweet. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to... I'm navigating to the event uh, mm-hmm. on Facebook right now because Richard was stirring up some... Uh, Stirring up some trouble earlier today. Um, yeah, Livius did a post earlier that Richard commented on, um, but there's a comment that he made on a David James Keaton post, where Keaton said, 
I finally picked one I'm going to read for the book live reading. I'm basing this selection on the assumption that no one ever wants to hear people read stuff. Very encouraging. Thank you, David James Keaton, for <laughs> rolling up the enthusiasm ahead of the event. Uh, Richard, somewhere along the comments, says, Man, I still haven't picked what to read. How about the guy that jacks off over his wife's translucent remains to bring his wife back from the dead? It's a sweet story. <laughs> See, this makes me worried that we didn't just tell these guys what to read. <laughs> like, we could have just put in requests um, and said, Hey, you know, Deech, read some Simon Meeks. Richard Thomas, read something we liked on the show. <laughs> like, you know. Zero corpse masturbation, please. <laughs> oh, man. I do have it on good authority that both David James Keaton and Kevin Lynn Helmick will be reading stuff that's never been heard before. Mm. So that's kind of cool. Um, I'm not going to give away any more details. All I know is that Keaton was very excited when we told him we wanted him to like kind of bring his A game, and there might even be explosions. Hey, I'm always all for that. Well, if everybody survives the actual reading, they can uh, buy a book that's signed by everybody who is in attendance. Well, not like the audience, but like the actual. <laughs> I mean, like, you can have the audience the readers, sign your I mean, like, Once you pay for it, you can do whatever the hell you want with it. You get like the waiter to come over mm-hmm. and sign, sign a page. So we will be bringing you those readings uh, as a uh, next week as probably a couple of episodes in place of our regular book epi- booked episodes this um, next week. That's right. So that's our reading. We'll probably be tweeting some pictures, maybe Instagramming them. Uh, Booked Podcast has an Instagram account if you want to follow and see the kind of stuff we get up to. It's Booked Podcast. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, you know, Instagram. We'll probably be posting up some stuff from from that. Do we have a Pinterest? We need a Pinterest. Go for it. I'm not going to maintain the Pinterest. <laughs> See, and that's the thing. If I don't maintain the Pinterest, there's going to be like one thing pinned. Yeah, no, Pinterest is horrible. I was kidding. <laughs> so. Good. Um, all right, and I know everybody was disappointed when I said Skip Papersley won't be actually the MC for our reading, but uh, worry not. We do actually have um, Skip Papersley for you right here with Book News. This is Book News. I'm Skip Papersley. Now for the news. The Huffington Post outdoes itself today running a video and story exposing a deep, dark secret in the entertainment world. The upcoming Percy Jackson and the Sea of Monsters movie is different from the book by Rick Riordan. Oh my god. Way to blow the lid off of this hot topic, HuffPo. In other news, publishers are changing the recipe of their books. After a study showed that people are more likely to buy books in stores if they smell like chocolate, publishers Penguin and Macmillan are adding chocolate to their wood pulp when making paper. A spokesperson for the publishers stated that there will be enough, quote, chocolate-flavored food substance to make the books edible and quite tasty. All the Penguin and Macmillan books are now going to have a sticker warning to keep them out of the sun. Now, the New York Times bestsellers in fiction recap. And the Mountains Echoed by Khalid Husseini reaches the valley at number five. Danielle Steele is at fourth with First Sight. Fake JK's book, The Cuckoo Calling, makes some noise at number three. The second spot cools down Dean Brown's Inferno. In first place is the book everyone thought was J.K. Rowling's The English Girl by Daniel Silva. This has been Book News. I'm Skip Habersley, signing off. All right, once again, that was Skip Papersley with Book News. Uh, one thing, all right, so we've always tried to keep an even 
uh, or some sort of balance between indie books and New York Times bestsellers, right? Yeah, I yeah i I think it was. I don't know how balanced it was, but yeah. Or we at least try to do you know a little of both here and there. Mm-hmm. I think we're tipping the New York Times bestsellers a little too heavy, uh, and that's why I'm kind of glad we did uh, Mr. Melick's book this time around because you know we did Ocean at the End of the Lane. The Cuckoo's Calling, we did Inferno. All of these have been like just bombarding the New York Times bestseller list recently. So mm-hmm. glad we're kind of bringing it back to more of the indie uh, to, to mid-range publishing kind of uh, uh, arena. We And we, we may continue to do that for a little bit, but we have Stephen King in September. Ooh, that's right. Our first ever Stephen King. I may actually take this opportunity this coming week to read um, The Shining, the prequel to Dr. Sleep. Oh, that's right. I should probably do that, too, since I've never read it. And we will have S.G. Brown coming up, and he's kind of big time, too. Oh, he is. Indeed, he is. S.G. Brown. This is the whole thing. Like, like here's what we read, you know, Carlton Melk, and I go, man, this can go either way. I don't know they can go either way with S.G. Brown. I'm thoroughly enamored with the guy's books. I'm happy with everything I've gotten so far. The problem there is high expectations. Is he mm. going to live up to them? I don't know. Hopefully he doesn't have too big of an ego. Nice. I wonder if anybody else got that. Probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Big egos. Big it's, egos. That'd be the next review you hear from us here. Depending on who you are, it might be easier than you think to lose a big ego. All right. So for what Rob, Rob is referring to, for those who uh, don't know, which would be all of you, um, <laughs> SG Brown was nice enough to send us a copy of Big Egos, I don't know, three months ago. Signed, two booked, <sighs> yeah. advanced reader copy. And uh, Rob gave it to me, and I immediately um, misplaced it. <laughs> so that would have been this week's review, because we were going to do it right before the week it came out. Instead, on uh, on Tuesday, I'm buying a couple of copies uh, on Amazon, and uh, that'll be next book review you hear. Um, can I tell you something? I haven't even mentioned this to you <laughs> off the air. Um, without saying where I work, um, I-, I work at a place where we actually have a bargain bin of books, and one of my coworkers said to me, because I'm scouring, I'm like, I, I was at work when he gave it to me, so maybe it's on one of these shelves. You know, like I'm looking through through my office, and and uh, the guy says, he goes, dude, what if someone just found it and threw it in the $5 book bin? Oh, God. Oh. I'll, I'll be honest, that's about when I stopped looking when he said that. I mean, I, I walked out to the book bin and I looked. So the moral of the story is... Uh, don't give Livius your signed books. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so uh, thank you, S.G. Brown, for sending us a copy. I'm sure whoever ended up with that copy, because I have to imagine that someone decided to take it because it was a signed book or something. I, I don't know. I, I can't imagine what could have happened to it. Um, hopefully they enjoyed it. I'm going to be scouring eBay and uh, Abe Books to see if anyone's selling a book that's autographed, too booked, <laughs> to find this culprit. Um but man, we didn't want to read in paper anyway, right? Kindle copies will be much better for us. Uh, okay. <laughs> I like paper books. Yeah, glad somebody does, I guess. Hmm. So what else we got, sir? Um, I don't know. You have a bit of exciting Kurt Vonnegut news, sort of, kind of. Kind of, kind of troubling, kind of exciting, kind of confusing. So we we mentioned very briefly in the past that Amazon was going into the world world of monetizing fan fiction we didn't really say monetizing we've kind of said that they were going to be trying to legitimize it but realistically they're monetizing it i didn't really look into very much how like the mechanics of how it works before because i was just 
not that interested. However, with this recent news, uh, I had to kind of look into, I had to dig deeper to see exactly how terrible this possibly could be. I saw an article in The Verge um, earlier today, August 1st, Thursday, uh, about how Amazon has acquired, and I'm going to go to the article so I can kind of read it for you. Amazon Kindle Worlds, it's called Kindle Worlds, is the uh, the fan fiction um, element of Amazon's monolithic empire, monolithic Livius. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and um, they recently acquired uh, the rights to publish fan fiction from some of Kurt Vonnegut's most popular titles. So that means that if I wanted to, I could write a Kilgore Trout story and publish it as Kurt Vonnegut fan fiction and sell it in Amazon. Now, I read that and I'm like, wait a minute, acquired rights. So then I went to the Amazon uh, Kindle Worlds page to see kind of what, what happens. And essentially what they did was they went to these major companies like Warner Brothers and some comic book companies and other you know, publishers and stuff and acquired rights uh, to different um, I guess, you know, properties so that people could legally publish and sell fan fiction for those um, properties, including stuff like Gossip Girl and Pretty Little Liars, The Vampire Diaries, um, a bunch of comic books I've never heard of, and like some, you know, established um, fiction series and stuff like that. So, in, in addition to that, now they've recently, and this is just, I have to imagine, enormous for them, acquired the rights to be able to do that with these Kurt Vonnegut stories as well. All right, so let's talk about this for a little bit, because I, I wasn't even paying attention until you said Gossip Girl, and then I went and I bought five <laughs> fan fiction Gossip Girl stories to read. But, um, you know, they, they've monetized it, which is great. I know there's a market for writing fan fiction and, and reading fan fiction. I, I've always felt that it's probably the exact same people. You know, that you go on a mm-hmm. forum and you write fan fiction, you read someone else's fan fiction that's probably directed at the same type of, you know, My Little Pony we talked about and, <laughs> the and stuff like that. Yeah. But, um, so you're, you're a pretty big Vonnegut fan, the biggest one I know, like personally. Um, are, are you going to spend, you know, like three bucks to, to read a Kurt Vonnegut fan fiction? See, that's the problem. I'm like simultaneously horrified by the idea and like very intrigued and almost like kind of tempted. So I don't really know how to feel about it because the 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 true Vonnegut fan inside of me says this is a terrible idea. First of all, and I saw someone there was a comment on the Verge saying basically that this is terrible because they're profiting off of Vonnegut and like besmirching him at the same time. Um, so that's my initial reaction. But then the other side of me thinks, well, you know, I I think it'd be kind of fun to write Vonnegut fan fiction or see what people have to contribute to the world that Vonnegut's created. So, uh, I don't know. There's a little internal struggle going on. In the episode we mentioned fan fiction on was uh, when we reviewed uh, The Fringe Book by Krista Faust. Yeah. And, you know, my first thought is, you know, how, how are, they, are they vetting this? Can anybody just upload Kilgore Trout fan fiction or, or you know... Um, vampire Diaries fan fiction or is there an actual process where it's approved and submitted because Fringe was fan fiction right but 
the folks from Fringe wanted Krista Faust to write these books, you know, it was written by somebody we know, even though we never read her before, his credibility as a writer. So you weren't getting, you know, a 14-year-old kid writing fanfic about the Vampire Diaries. You were getting an established author writing an approved version, approved story. Do you get what I'm saying? It goes through an editing process. I I don't know if Amazon is even bothering with that. Nope, I don't think they are. Yeah, so I don't know how many people are going to spend money on this. This is, I'm assuming, the same stuff you can find free. What what did we find? Like 28,000 fan fiction listing for stories? Yeah, I mean, through Kindle Worlds, they've published like 130 stories so far. Mm-hmm. It's more limited, but still. There's a quote from, there's some testimonials about, about publishing through Kindle Worlds. This first one kind of scares me a little bit. This was downright, fly by the seat of your pants, take chances, go places you've never been, fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That basically, to me, says that anybody can do anything and someone's going to buy it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... Sure. I don't know. I won't be purchasing any. Um, Again, um, you know, unless I find that, you know, an author that I believe in and and love is, you know, writing a a Vampire Diaries uh, novel, I I don't think I'm going to be reading them. Oh, that that just made me think of something. Like, what if we had someone... What if established authors go after this? Like... All of a sudden, we see Christopher Moore is writing like Vampire Diaries fan fiction, and like as odd as that sounds, I'd be like, I want to see what he thinks. You know what his, you know, a contribution to a Vampire Diaries story would be, just because like it would be so weird, and I trust his writing. So like it's a ridiculous example, obviously, but um, I was trying to go for something universal. Uh, you know, so that that could be if that was. Like, if all the legit authors got together and just, like, invaded Kinder Worlds, that could be a lot of fun. Well, and that's what I said, because you'd, you'd have some belief in the person who did it and, you know, what type of research they did and their writing quality and stuff. So, yeah. But, yeah, while you're at it, I am going to lobby hard this weekend to get David James Keaton to write a Gossip Girl fanfic novel. Dude, seriously. If Chuck yeah. Wendig wrote some Vonnegut fiction, I would be all over that. Yeah, so I mean, I just I don't see it being a big business for them, but then again, I don't know if Amazon has made too many mistakes in their you know marketing and the things they've done. They seem to be very successful at uh, basically every turn. So maybe this is a good thing for them, or maybe it just doesn't cost them anything. So. Royalty rates. Ooh, I'm on the Kindle Worlds for authors side. Mm-hmm. Amazon Publishing will pay royalties to the rights holder for the world. And to you, your standard royalty rate for works of at least 10,000 words will be 35% of net revenue. So you're splitting the revenue with the original rights owners and Amazon, obviously. That's, uh, that's interesting. Anywhere from a dollar to $4 is the average price for these Kindle Worlds stories. That, yeah, well, you know, oddly enough, though, I've seen some of some of our writer friends publish things for a buck or, or three bucks, and, and they're getting less than that for, you know, yeah, for their own original non non fanfic works. So. The the sick thing, and I, I know we're, we don't want to talk about this for too long, is the the sick thing about it is that, and the real tempting draw is that you're writing in a world that's got a built in audience, mm-hmm. so the likelihood of someone buying something that you wrote is astronomically larger. It's actually kind of 
ridiculously genius of Amazon. Yeah, if it takes off. So I guess we'll have to keep an eye on it and see how it uh, how it yeah, does. See how it fares. Yeah, I'm not really rooting for it to be honest. So until Keaton writes Gossip Girl fanfic, yeah, I'm not sold on this idea. Everybody, keep an eye out on Kindle Worlds for uh, Vampire Diaries fanfic by an author named Livius N. You know, I wonder how that works because that's still a series of novels, but apparently they paid the WB for the rights. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. And with Gossip Girl, I mean, I think that the series is done. I don't think they're doing any more Gossip Girl oh, books. So for them you, to sell that off, who cares? And you know, this is outside of canon, right? This is just oh yeah, the no, Wild I, West. Yeah. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> that's why you're so angry right now. Yeah, seriously, dude. I would, I would probably, I told you, we had this conversation. <laughs> if this was canon, you know, I'd probably be able to get behind some of this stuff. So, any rate. All right, enough about this boring fanfic garbage. Um, we kind of have a, 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 Rob at least has a has a new addition to the, to the booked family, so to speak, right? In a way, yeah. Something much more permanent than the fleeting world of Amazon worlds, right? Yes, yes, I agree. Rob kind of did his own fan fiction. Yeah, my arm is still healing from this fan fiction. I uh, I got a tattoo, Livius. I know. All right, so this is for the like 200 people that didn't like the post of his tattoo. So <laughs> however many of you were left that hadn't, <laughs> hadn't seen this already. This crazy son of a bitch went out and got a tattoo that covers the entire outside of his forearm. And, and I guess I'll let you describe it to people. All right, so um, because the booked logo is white letters on black, I knew that eventually when I got a booked tattoo, it was going to use my skin as the white letters. So like the, the letters were going to be a negative space, and there was going to be dark ink surrounding it. So understanding that just a square block of black around the word booked would be really stupid looking. Uh, kind of branched out a little bit to see what other options we had and we settled on what if we just it just looked like a bunch of random splatterings of ink dropped onto my arm and um the booked letters were kind of outlined within that ink so that's exactly what we did about three hour session one time sat down with a, a brilliant tattoo artist by the name of les walton who i happened to work with and um, just banged it out. So uh, basically it looks like if someone just took a bunch of ink and dripped it onto a piece of paper, all the splotches and splatters and stuff, with the word booked just right in the center of it. I just want to tell people who haven't seen it that his description is nowhere near doing this justice. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> From and, a distance, know, and- it looks like I was in some sort of like, it looks like I'm like zombie zero. Because like there's something like seriously wrong with like my body, <laughs> but um, up close it's really cool looking. Um, so when when did you actually decide to do? Say we mentioned it in passing, but Monday night you're like, yeah, Wednesday I'm I'm gonna get a tattoo. <laughs> uh, I'd been talking about it for a couple months, uh, and then last week, Les texted me and he's like, hey, when are we doing this tattoo? And I said, oh, I'm you know only work until six this day, and he's like, let's do it. So it was kind of last minute. I, I knew a couple days in advance that I was gonna be getting it. Nice, and uh, if you're at the book reading for an extra dollar, Rob will roll up his sleeve and show you the statue. That's wow! I never thought of that. See, that's, Good marketing that's yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but it is it is very cool, and you are absolutely nuts. 
So. Do you not approve of this tattoo? I approve of the tattoo, but it's a giant tattoo on like your forearm. See, I can't do that. Oh yeah, I'm not opposed to tattoos. You know that. Yeah, I just eh, forearm tattoos and, and that big. Uh, I couldn't do it. it. It's not that I. It's not that I feel negatively about you for doing it, but when I think about doing it myself, I, I like cringe. So. I want to be able to see it. Well, there it's you so go. pretty. There you go. It is very cool. But yes, I could see where from a distance someone might look and be like, what the hell's wrong with that guy's yeah, What happened to that guy? Because <laughs> it really looks, and it's not because it's like, it's not a, a shape. It's just kind of a amorphous thing. Mm-hmm. And it just looks like, it honestly looks like I fell and like scraped up my arm and I have a giant scab or something. Oh, it's going to be a big hit with the ladies. That's right. So... All right. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we let the listeners uh, go on and get back to their copy of the book anthology? Uh, one final reminder: Saturday night, if you're in the Chicago, if you're if you're within four hours, five hours driving distance of Chicago, get your ass to the Galway Arms in Chicago by seven p.m. Chris Deal, Joshua Deach, Kevin Helmick, David James Keaton, Richard Thomas, Livius, and I will be there, probably getting drunk. Um, it's just going to be an awesome time. We've gotten a lot of responses that a lot of people are going to be there. So um, do it. Just make sure you get out there. You can get your book to anthology uh, print copy signed by like the entire universe and um, just have a, have a great time. Agreed. And if for some reason you can't make it and acceptable reasons are that um, uh, you are somehow physically impaired and are not able to leave your house, perhaps because you want a billion dollars in the lottery that could happen um (laughs) if your car breaks down en route from washington where you're driving from or uh you know you're stuck in mexico because there's a problem with your visa to get back into the country or whatever you have to have um then yeah tune in next week we will be bringing you the event um right here at book podcast that's right so that's going to wrap it up for our first ever carlton Mellick the third book review episode Until next time, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. Where is she answering? And who am I? That's not a secret I'll never tell. You know you love me. XOXO. Gossip.